Howdy, folks. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of TGC Midweek. Jacob and Michael back with you on the pod. Michael, first recording of 2021. How is the new year treating you? Hey, yeah, that's right. I didn't even think about that. It's it's treat me treat me well. So All far, so good. Yeah, All five it, days. It, there, there's 360 days left. There, a lot could happen. 2021. <laughs> that's right. Uh, are Are you a New Year's resolution guy? I'm I'm not really a New Year's resolution guy. I do take this opportunity to think about ways that I'd like to improve. Yeah. But I try not to make resolutions, um, partially because I don't want to be disappointed, <laughs> but partially because I'd like to continue to improve through the year. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, there's not a big philosophical reason that I don't do it. I just, you know, don't make many resolutions at the new year. I make resolutions <laughs> through the year yeah. <laughs> that sometimes I'll break through the year. That's right. But then you can always pick up another one and it's, you know, that's right. then it's just a scoreboard at the end of the year. Yeah. What are some of the big things on the list for this year that you know of, or at this point? They're always, they're always kind of the same this year. I, um, I'd like to read more books. Mm -hmm. And so I've crafted a list of 25 books that I'd like to read through the year at least. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of those books is getting through Calvin's Institutes again uh, through the year. And so not only reading through the Bible in a year, hopefully, but also you can go find plans to read through the Institutes. Really? And that is uh, something that I'm going to try to tackle this year and just take it slow but enjoy it as I do it. Because the Institutes, uh-huh. not only is it just really rich theologically— but it has a devotional tone to it. And so reading it alongside the scriptures oftentimes can feel, it doesn't feel like a intellectual exercise, although it is, it can feel a little bit like a devotional exercise. Mm. What else? What's going to drink, book drink more water. Um, I'd like to, I'd like to run at least a thousand miles this year. Wow. I got 850 under my belt last year. And so I need to do a little bit more this year if I'm going to get to the thousand mile mark. But it's, you know, a sickness here or there through the year or a vacation will put a dent in that pretty quick. Uh And so, I mean, or at least keep me from getting there pretty quick. So, um, you know, got to stay, stay on it to get to that 1K mark. Are you going to run any races this year? No, the last race I signed up for, they canceled it, but they sent me a medal in the mail. So <laughs> they sent me my medal and my my race shirt in the mail. Oh, man. And then they That's encouraged weird. you to run it um, and take pictures, oh, but gosh. I didn't do it. Once the no. race got canceled, I stopped training. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, that's funny. What about you? Man, I... uh I'm kind of like you. I'm not really a resolution guy. From time to time, I'll have some kind of goal that I want to get better at. Um, last year, I wanted to get better at cooking. Um, so that's basically the opposite of running a thousand miles, I suppose. But <laughs> <laughs> I I learned how to cook a few decent things uh, at the house just because uh, when COVID started, we couldn't really go out for nice meals anymore. I didn't want to give up nice meals. And so I thought, I'm just going to cook them at home. <laughs> yep. So. 
learned to do that last year. But uh, reading more is one on my list too. I've got an ambitious uh, thing, sort of like the Institutes for You, and I'm going to try to get through Augustine's The City of God. I got a a nice hardback copy for Christmas, mm. and uh, it, it it it's so far it's a slog. It might be. If I get through it in two years, I think I'll feel pretty good because <laughs> yeah. I think I'll need some breaks to read something else sure. between things. That's great. That would be a great book to have under your belt. Yeah, I think I think timely too, just for where we are, Absolutely. kind of in the culture. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I I think I've got the boost and bummer, and and I think these will be quick because they're just little things that that I've noticed. So my boost, this is going to sound totally insignificant, um, but it occurred to me uh, right before we were, we were, uh, we hit the record button here, but I just have a strong affinity for carbonated beverages, like probably more than the average person. And it doesn't really matter the specific genre of carbonated beverage, carbonated water, soda, the kind that's made out of grains that are pre-digested by a fungus. I mean, you name it. If it has bubbles in it, I enjoy drinking it. I don't know who the guy was or why he thought to pressurize gas and shoot it into a liquid and then drink it. Uh, but good on you, man. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like uh, water with something happening. <laughs> it's like water, but exciting. You know? Yeah. Yep. I love sparkling so, water. Man, I, I do I, something about the texture of a carbonated water is much more refreshing than just mm-hmm. plain old cold tap water. It's hard for me to drink tap water now. I almost oh, really? always yeah. drink drink carbonated water. I do too, but even though it's like three dollars for a twelve pack of H E B, I can go. We, me and Brittany, we can go through them pretty quick. Yep. And uh, my my bummer, and this one is, I, I think we'll get some hearty amens from some folks who who understand this. But um, it's a, so we we have a one and a half year old, and he's normally um, a fairly pleasant child, uh, but he's a bit under the weather today. Had a pretty high mm-hmm. fever, like hundred two, hundred and three, wow. and sick babies are the worst. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Because they want to make sure that that you know that they're sick all the time, and yeah. they, so they're just going to broadcast it the whole the whole time. He's normally not a crier, but he's just been uh, wailing. It's all funny afternoon. you say that because I think that my wife would say the same about me. Sick husbands are the worst because <laughs> I'll hey, moan dude. and groan. I want everyone to know that I'm sick. Uh huh. And uh, man, it's, the, yeah, the, the man cold. The man cold is a real thing. Yes. You know? If I get if I get the sniffles, I gotta have to kind of talk with those kind of uh, those yep. kind of weird grunts as you're kind of working through that congestion and nose tickle, mm-hmm. and and I gotta sneeze really dramatically so that everyone knows <laughs> what I'm going through. It, right. it convulses my entire body when I sneeze. Yeah, the man man cold is a thing. Mm. But yeah, sick babies, total bummer. Hope he feels um, better. Yeah, me too. Uh, yeah, hopefully he, he crashed when we put him down, so hopefully he'll oh, be good. better tomorrow. Yeah. Well, Michael, let's continue now with our uh, regularly scheduled programming. Uh, we've been going through our overview of the Bible series for quite some time now. A couple of weeks ago, entered into the New Testament, and we started going through the book of Acts a couple of weeks ago, um, splitting it into two parts. 
Uh, we went through the first 12 chapters of Acts. Why don't you give us uh, a brief recap that'll kind of just be a running start for us as we get into the second half of this book? Sure. Acts is a book that is a second part. Luke is the author, and the first part of his story is recounted in his gospel, the Gospel of Luke. And he picks up the second part of his story with the book of Acts. And at the very beginning of Acts, he says that in Luke, he started talking about all that Jesus came to teach and do. And now in the book of Acts, he continues to tell the story of what Jesus is going to continue to teach and do through his followers. And so what's basically happening at the very beginning of Acts is the message of the gospel, the message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is being taken out by his followers to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so there's really concentric circles that you should have in mind when you think about the mission that they're engaged in. And the first part of the book of Acts is really them taking this gospel message, this good news that Jesus is the new king, that Jesus is the Savior and the Lord of this world. They take this news to Jerusalem, uh, and then they take it out a little bit further to Judea and Samaria. And then, due to persecution, they are forced to basically take it out to um, the ends of the earth. And in the first part of the book of Acts, really the main character that you see is the Apostle Peter. Uh, Peter being one of the closest followers of Jesus, and he is really the apostle to the Jewish people. The first part of the book is really focused on Jews and them understanding and believing this gospel message that Peter preaches. And really the main city in the first part of the book of Acts is Jerusalem. It's the hub, the center of where all activity is taking place. When you get to the second part of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13 through 28, Peter kind of fades into the background and Paul becomes the main character, the Apostle Paul. You can read about Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. He actually encounters um, Jesus on the road to Damascus in a really supernatural way where Jesus uh, approaches him in dazzling light, blinds him, calls him to be his follower, uh, and that really changes everything for Paul. Uh, his name changes from Saul to Paul. Uh, he becomes uh, a preeminent church planter and missionary in the early church, writes a bulk of the New Testament uh, toward to churches that he planted uh, for further instruction in the gospel. And so Paul really becomes the main character here in the second uh, portion of the book of Acts. The main city changes from Jerusalem to Antioch, and we kind of touched on that last time we talked about Acts. Uh, the, the missionary journeys that Paul takes are actually launched from the city of Antioch. Antioch is actually the first place where followers of Jesus are called Christians. And believe it or not, I think Christians is only used three times in the New Testament. Normally, Christians are referred to as um, saints or those in Christ as you read the New Testament, so it's not a common term that we read in the New Testament, but uh, you do see it, and one place you see it is in Antioch there in Acts chapter 13. And then also the main people transition from Jews to Gentile in the second half of Acts. Basically, as Paul takes this gospel message, 
uh, out to the Roman Empire, he is encountering not only Jews, which we can talk about, but more importantly and more broadly, he's encountering Gentiles who may or may not be Roman citizens. And if that's the case politically, they would give homage and allegiance to Caesar as their lord. And then what's more, they'd also likely be polytheistic people, uh, worshiping many gods, many idols. Oftentimes, Paul would encounter different temples as he entered these different cities in the Mediterranean basin. And so you've got political aspects, spiritual aspects, all at play as you read the second portion of the book of Acts. That's right. One of the scenes that I think encapsulates this um, transition from a Jewish focus to a Gentile focus is the Jerusalem Council that we read about in Acts chapter 15, where um, the the Jewish believers basically still sort of headquartered there in Jerusalem are trying to work through some of the nuances that that uh, that they would have to kind of uh, mentally deal with as they're thinking about Gentiles being brought into the covenant and what all that means. Yeah, you got to think how how transformational and how new this whole experience would have been for these original followers of Jesus. So Paul takes his first missionary journey, which which starts in Acts chapter thirteen. He goes through Asia Minor in that first missionary journey, and he experiences, I guess, what we would call success with his gospel proclamation. Gentiles are believing on Jesus. They're placing their faith in him, believing this gospel message that Paul is preaching. And now all of a sudden, the Jewish people have decisions to make. Up to this point, they've always, once they've come into the covenant community, have had adhered to certain customs, Jewish customs and regulations. And the question arose, once Gentiles came to believe this gospel message, were the Gentiles also required to observe these customs and regulations of the Jews? And Paul basically uh, brings this question to the church leaders in Acts chapter 15, like you mentioned in Jerusalem, known as the Jerusalem Council, which is a favorite chapter of Presbyterians because in many ways what you get here is a picture of the first presbytery or the first general assembly where uh, church leaders are coming together to decide, decide theological and doctrinal issues. And the Judaizers really are pressing for the Gentiles to be circumcised, Judaizers being those who really want the Jewish customs and regulations to be followed. They think it's fine if you come to believe in Jesus through faith, but you also need to adopt the Jewish customs and rituals. That's what Judaizers would have taught. But the Jerusalem Council, they put their heads together, Peter and other leaders in the church, and they decide that Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. Um, And they basically craft a letter and send a letter to the Gentiles. And uh, let me just read this letter. It's, it's interesting. You can, you can read it in Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 23. They wrote, From the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings, since we have heard that some without 
Our authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts. We have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you along with our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision, and ours, not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. And so basically deciding not to impose the Jewish customs and regulations upon them, uh, but to uh, encourage them to abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything strangled, and from sexual immorality, um, which you could make the case had moral, um, uh, more focused on the moral obligations of these followers of Jesus that would, would be Gentiles. And so it's just interesting, Acts chapter 15, Jerusalem Council, uh, the plurality of elders coming together, Holy Spirit working through their decision-making process not to put further burdens upon the Gentiles who are coming to believe in Jesus. What does that mean when they say to abstain um, from blood? I know in the Old Testament there's a lot about not eating things that have the blood in them. Yep. Um, is are they are we is that being transferred from the Old Testament to the Gentiles here as well, or um, am I doing wrong when I eat a medium rare steak? You know that would be that would be an argument that some folks make. In fact, I had an Old Testament professor in seminary who would never eat anything that was not well done, and it was because he was under the conviction, I believe that this regulation was still in place for Gentiles. Now, I think that you could make the argument that this potentially could have been a cultural um, regulation. And uh, obviously, you got food offered to idols, which does no longer happen today. I mean, in our part of the world, that might happen in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And Christians would likely do well to consider abstaining from food offered to idols if that's the culture they live in. Um, there must have been something um, that they understood uh, with regard to blood that might be a cultural issue that no longer pertains to us today, because I don't know many Christians and serious Christian scholars who stay away from medium-rare steaks, and uh, that would just be I mean, I'm kind of speaking off the cuff now. I, I would hate that personally, but I guess if, <laughs> if if God's word commands it, we should probably do it. But um, all that to say, you're on the right track, but I think there's more theological, exegetical, and cultural work to do there before you mm. just prohibit medium-rare steaks for Christians. Sure. And now we're down yeah. a rabbit trail probably that We are. And, and the strangled but. thing is weird as well, almost as if that was a— culturally common way of uh, dispatching animals for consumption. Sure. And there you might even just get a hint that, you know, there is a dignity to life that God cares about. Mm -hmm. And if we are going to be the vice regents uh, in charge of this creation that God's created, 
then it does matter how we treat and care for and even slaughter and consume the good gifts that God has given us to steward. And I think that there's a, there's a lot of things happening here culturally um, that, that might have been happening in that day and age where obviously this would have set Christians apart in a way that was positive. Um, sure. they, would have, they would have been very clearly different than the culture in which they lived, uh, which likely had a lot to do with these encouragements coming from the Jerusalem Council mm-hmm. to be in the world but not of the world. Um, not to assimilate with the world to maintain our our Christian distinctiveness. Right. Yeah. Th- thanks for indulging me on that little, little rabbit trail there. Do you have any other thoughts on the Jerusalem Council before we continue on here? Nope. That that basically launches Paul back out into his second and third missionary journey, and you could imagine the relief that Paul might have felt, uh, and even the freedom now that he has to go out and continue to plant new churches and visit churches that he'd already planted, being able to proclaim faith in Christ alone as the only requirement uh, for salvation, along with once you place your faith in Jesus following the moral law and some of these encouragements from the Jerusalem Council that they had given in order to maintain distinctiveness. And so I would imagine that the Jerusalem Council was a huge weight off Paul's shoulder um, in terms of his proclamation of the gospel. Right. You know, I think as I'm kind of skimming through these chapters here, we would probably be bad Presbyterians if we went through the uh, the rest of Acts here and didn't mention the accounts of household baptism that we often see. I'm I'm looking right now at the conversion of Lydia in Acts 16. Um, where this woman named Lydia is baptized, and Luke is specific here to mention as sort of a like a in, sort of an insertion where it says uh, she was baptized in her household as well. She urged us, saying, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that insertion there seems very deliberate. Yeah, and you see a number of household baptisms in the Book of Acts, and it's interesting that this comes right on the heels of the Jerusalem Council. Mm-hmm. where they talk about circumcision is no longer required, but baptism was still the initiation right into the covenant community. No longer was it bloody. It was a bloodless initiation right. Uh, it was a right that signified cleansing and renewal. Uh, the work of Jesus, what he wants to do in our hearts, was physically symbolized by the pouring on of water. And rather than rather than the curse of the covenant being symbolized the curse being a person being cut off from the community. Sure, yeah. And um and not only that, uh it would it would be administered not only to men but also women now. Mm-hmm. And so it became more inclusive. And what you see in the book of Acts and it's it's an argument from silence because nowhere does it explicitly mention children being a part of these households. But you would be hard pressed in this culture and this this time that the New Testament was written to think that there would not be children in these households. And so Lydia being converted, what that what that did was it triggered her family's uh, inclusion in the covenant community. Uh, and so not only did she re- receive baptism, but her family did as well. Uh, you also see it happening with uh, 
the Philippian jailer there in in Acts chapter sixteen, uh, verse thirty one. It said, uh, "They said this would have been Paul. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household." And they spoke the word of the Lord to them along with everyone in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. And so this idea that uh, God never stopped working through families, uh, his desire is to be a covenant God, a God who works through the family unit, and uh, just like those and their children in the Old Testament uh, were brought into the covenant by way of family, uh, things haven't changed in, in the New Testament. Uh, the thing that has changed in some ways is, especially in our culture, a lot of times we'll proclaim the gospel to individuals that did not grow up in Christian households. And so... Um, uh, that obviously is going to be more and more the case the further we move into kind of a post-Christian uh, world. But in this familial culture that we find in the New Testament, that would have been a little bit foreign. Uh, you adopt the religion that the head of the household would have adopted. That's right. I think, you know, we, we've talked about that um, a number of times before. We did a, a whole series on on sacraments and spent some good time on that. So, if folks are interested, I'd, I'd point them to that, uh, those previous episodes, but just thought we should mention it as we're going through Acts here. Um, let's talk a little bit more about Paul and his, um, I guess, uh, how he's fit for the role that he's in, I suppose. He, he's kind of an interesting character because he seems to be pretty comfortable um, no matter where he is, and he seems to approach the situations really well. So I'm, I'm, look, I'm just kind of skimming through here and looking at subtitles, but... Um, you get this scene in Acts 17 where Paul uh, is is at the Areopagus, which is, uh, well, I don't really know. It's like a big hill or something. But um, it's where the intelligentsia uh, of Athens would have gathered to, you know, um, hear debates and discussions and things like that. And he basically engages their their worldview in such a way that he says, I can see that you're all very religious and that you've got these uh, statues and temples to all these gods, including one to an unknown God. And Mm -hmm. using that as kind of his prologue, he uh, is able to sort of uh, engage them in sort of what they know, but then also use that as the springboard for the gospel. I love this passage. One of my favorite passages in the book of Acts and it really, I think, should influence how the church relates to culture. And so you see Paul, not only is he able to go into this to this context and appreciate what he sees, uh, you see him affirm what he sees as good and true and beautiful in the lives of these pagans, but he doesn't just affirm, he also brings challenge. And so that idea of affirm and challenge is always something that I like to have in my mind, and I think that it would be good to have in our minds as we think about the culture that we're a part of. What are areas that we can affirm? What are areas where we can encourage our friends and neighbors that might not yet have come to know Jesus and point out the good and true and beautiful aspects of their lives? 
And then what are areas where we can lovingly challenge uh, and push against them and invite them to consider the truth claims of Jesus? This is a great passage for evangelism. What you see here is Paul doesn't seek to dominate uh, this culture. Uh, He doesn't come in guns blazing. Uh, He doesn't seek to isolate from this culture. He has no problem going to the Areopagus and being around non-believers. He doesn't expect non-believers to act like Christians. He's not offended when a non-believer doesn't act like a Christian. Uh, he's able to to be in that context with a lot of ease and, and low anxiety, which I love. Uh, but he also doesn't assimilate. Uh, he doesn't try to hide what he believes. He's very bold and courageous in how he proclaims Jesus to these very smart, philosophical folks that he encounters in Athens, which, like you said, would have been the intelligentsia. It would have been the New York City of the day. Um, But what we see is what I like to say is faithful presence. He's there. uh, He's quoting their authorities back to them using their poets here in Acts chapter 16, you have Paul quoting. There's, there's quotes in the Bible um, from, from pagan uh, poets that he uses here. Uh, he, he shows them that he knows what they believe and, and then lovingly invites them uh, into relationship with Jesus, who he proclaims is the known God. It's just a really beautiful picture of what evangelism should look like and a great picture for us as the church for how we should relate to the culture, I think. Mm-hmm. And not only does Paul engage there so well, he also makes the habit of uh, going to the the synagogues in each of these towns that he goes to and reasons with the Jewish community there. Um, according to the, the Jewish law in the Old Testament, just as soon as he pivots to that, he pivots to you know reasoning with the Gentiles or arguing before political leaders. Um this is just something that I think for evangelism or just for uh, plain old like common sense, um, n- knowing the audience and being able to engage in, in the unique circumstances that you find yourself in. Yes. I mean, Paul, I mean, obviously he would have been educated in some of the, mm-hmm. I guess we'd say, finest institutions of the day. Uh, he was known as Saul of Tarsus. And Tarsus in that culture would have been uh, regarded kind of as the Cambridge or the Oxford uh, of that, you know, of that region. And so uh, he would have been brought up in ways where he could, like you mentioned, he's engaging with the intelligentsia, political, powerful leaders, uh, normal, everyday citizens that he encounters on his journeys. The other thing that's interesting about Paul is that he is coming proclaiming a new king. That's really his message. Uh, His gospel was the good news that a new king had taken the throne, and he is presently ruling and reigning all things. And the political class didn't really see that as very threatening. They probably saw him a little bit as uh, a lunatic in some ways. Like, what does this have to do with us, this this Jewish Messiah that you said was raised again and is now ruling and reigning, we don't see him. We're not going to give you a second thought. Um, but it would have been very subversive, and uh, it would have potentially and did eventually get him in a lot of trouble when folks started to realize this guy's serious. 
and he is actually influencing large numbers of people to begin to worship and and to bow their knee to a new lord, uh, a new king. And that's eventually what got Paul uh, martyred uh, by the Roman government, um, is this proclamation that a new king was on the throne. And not only that, he would have been entering into a very polytheistic culture. And so he was coming and proclaiming to folks that would worship many idols that there was one true God, and they needed to turn from their idols and worship this one true God if they wanted to have hope of salvation and eternal life uh, with God himself. And so politically and spiritually, Paul just would have been completely um, unusual uh, for that culture in that day and age. And the other thing, and maybe we should have talked about this sooner, but the thing that I love to think about as well is this culture was ripe for the gospel to explode. It was ripe for the gospel to take root because folks were religiously and spiritually inclined. Um, it was a very pluralistic culture, but that doesn't necessarily mean that a, a pluralistic culture isn't ripe for the gospel. And this is where I, I love to make the distinction between pluralism and relativism. Uh, a culture where the gospel has little to no chance of surviving and thriving is a relativist culture. In a pluralistic culture where folks are exchanging ideas like in Acts chapter 16 and they're actually after the truth, I mean, after Paul talks to the intelligentsia at Acts chapter 16, they say, we want to hear more about this. Come back tomorrow because they are after truth. And the gospel can really flourish uh, in, a, in a society that might be pluralistic, might have many different beliefs, but in a society that is really seeking after truth because the gospel makes truth claims that can be verified that you know you can try on and wear and and figure out if if it is true and uh, but a relativistic culture which we are more and more becoming it says your truth for you my truth for me and there's no exchange of ideas and the gospel you know doesn't necessarily flourish or thrive in a relativistic culture and so i just say that uh, basically where the rubber hits the road there is we shouldn't be worried about living in a pluralistic culture. That's where the gospel really took off in the first century. Um, what we should be worried about is what we're becoming more and more of is a relativistic culture where there's no such thing as truth. And I think that that's where we feel a lot of frustration as Christians and even as Christian apologists because mm -hmm. in a relativistic culture, we don't get a fair hearing and really, at the end of the day, that's all Paul wanted was a fair hearing so that he could present his truth to a group of people that would be willing to consider the fact that there might be actual thing as truth out there. I don't know if that yeah, makes that, any sense. That does. That, and that's, that's a great point. Um, that distinction between pluralism and relativism is something that I think is so important. We shouldn't be afraid of other competing ideas, especially if if we believe that the one that we're espousing is the true one, what we should be uh, wary of and um, try to fight against is the idea that, that truth doesn't matter or that there's no such thing as truth. That's Absolutely. the real dangerous thing. 
yep. does Christianity at the table um, has has uh, a better truth claim than any other competing worldview or religion or, or philosophy? And if you can just look at the evidence, because Christianity is something that happened in real time in real space, you can look at the evidence, um, biblical and the evidence that exists in just sort of the um, historical record around the time of Jesus's uh, life and resurrection. Um, those pieces of evidence are incredibly valuable, even when there are other ideas that are being debated. Mm-hmm. But when you come into a context where even if you can prove something definitively, it doesn't matter because someone else can have their own truth as long as it's true for them. That's where things fall apart. Yep, absolutely. And and Paul was definitely working, I guess, to tie this up in a pluralistic yep. culture. Certainly. Not to fast forward too much, but following these missionary journeys, he kind of is in um, – you mentioned he kind of gets into a little bit of hot water and he sort of goes from one appeal to an, to another. Uh, and he, he, he's basically trying to get himself to Caesar. Like he's trying to get himself all the way up to the top, um, for, uh, the, the emperor of basically the civilized world to hear his, his appeal. The end of the book of acts has us with Paul in Rome. Um, he's like the, the least lucky sailor ever. Cause I think he's shipwrecked multiple times to get there, but, he, we we were left with Paul in Rome um, under house arrest, but otherwise thriving. The book ends with he lived there two years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So um, as Acts close, closes, Paul is still alive. Yep, Paul's still alive, and he—, he Likely, we can piece together from other parts of the New Testament that he's got goals and hopes of going all the way to Spain to mm. take the gospel to what would have been known as the ends of the earth in that day and age. Uh, but obviously, he is held up here in Rome uh, in house arrest. You get the sense that he was able to receive and entertain visitors, so it likely wasn't uh, the type of prison that we think about. I mean, Paul was a Roman citizen. That's why he could appeal to Caesar and be sent to Rome in order to await his day in court there. Um, but it ends, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, Acts uh, chapter 28 ends uh, a little bit on, um, uh, it, it, it leaves us hanging a little bit. Uh, the very uh, last two verses of Acts chapter 28 says, Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And it kind of, you know, the story's not complete. Mm -hmm. And uh, most folks would say that Luke is very intentional there because the story is continuing today. And we're invited to play a part in this story of God's mission in this world to take the gospel to those who don't yet know or have not yet heard of this good news of Jesus Christ. And so it's left open-ended because it is open-ended, and the story still continues. Jesus is still on the throne. The Holy Spirit is still at work in the hearts and lives of his believers, and the gospel message is continuing to go forth in this world. And uh, it's why you have uh, some church-planting networks call themselves Acts 29, because uh, they're carrying on this story of this God's mission um, into the world uh, in 
uh, it's kind of a, an interesting name to call your church planting network, Acts 29. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to write one more chapter onto this book. <laughs> That's right. Well, uh, we can probably close it there for the evening unless you've got further thoughts on Acts. Yeah, one last quick thing that I, I did want to highlight was, mm-hmm. and we touched on this last week or two weeks ago, um, is that you'll see Paul write a majority of the New Testament, and what he's doing is he's writing letters to churches that he established. And so uh, he established a church in Galatia. He established a church in Philippi. He established a church in Ephesus. And when you get to Galatians or Philippians or Ephesians, those are the letters that he's writing to the churches that he established, addressing certain doctrinal and moral issues that they're experiencing in their own context and culture in their own church. And so it's um, it's something to keep in mind. In Acts chapter 16, for instance, you see him plant the church in Philippi. You can kind of get a sense of what's going on there. And then you can go and read the book of Philippians. Uh, and so you get the history in the book of Acts, and then you get the didactic or uh, apostolic teaching that he gives those churches in his letters. And I think that's just important for folks um, as they try to piece together what is the New Testament how do I put it together? That's important to remember that um, Acts is the history, and he's writing letters to the churches that he established in his letters of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Uh, you mentioned uh, before we started recording that Acts is kind of like the terminal of the airport, and the epistles are the gates. Yeah, that's so right. I think that's a, a helpful way to to think about it. And we'll get into some of those epistles, folks, in, in coming weeks. So... Um, Michael, I'm going to go ahead and take us here to the end, unless you've got uh, anything further. Go for it. Great. Well, folks, we appreciate you tuning into this edition of TGC Midweek. Um, Tune in next week where we'll start talking about the epistles that you'll find in the New Testament. If you have questions about Acts or the rest of the New Testament, we'd love to receive those so that we can um, uh, consider them, maybe take a stab at them, and that'll help guide some of the discussion um, that we'll have on the show We appreciate you tuning in, folks. And if you do have those questions, you can email them to questions at trinitygracesa.org, or you can text those questions anonymously to the number you'll find on the back of your Sunday morning bulletin. This has been TGC Midweek, and until next time, we'll see you later.